This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. 156 minutes into Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, Heat, we have 10 pre-credits minutes left. And... The person that I've got on the show today is someone who I really admire, uh, and you know we've been talking about we've been talking to a lot of great film critics. You know, I think the top three or four in the world have already been on this show, and I've also talked to some amazing publications that are out there. That if you are listening, and especially if you're in Oz and you're not familiar with them, um, there's some indie publications who I think are doing as good a work uh, around film criticism and just film analysis as any of the big publications that you would have been completely aware of. A whole, a whole like mini click of the wonderful Bright Wall Dark Room publication have been on the show. Ethan Warren, Fran Hoffner, the awesome Travis Woods um, that you all know from the show. Um, but uh, today, uh, there's another little publication that I was so blessed uh, a little bit earlier this year to publish a deeply personal piece to um, about Finding Dory. And it's like when I was looking for places for this to go, there's really kind of only two publications I would have wanted it to go. One of them was Brightwell Dark Room, but um, uh, this publication um, and this great editor who I'm speaking to now uh, is is uh, where it eventually ended up. It went to Vague Visages, or uh, um, uh, uh, depending on how he says it, because his Midwestern accent might be slightly different, um, but uh, the man I'm speaking to right now, you would have read him at a stack of places, screen, rant, you would have seen him in IndieWise critic surveys, you would have seen him recently um, in, in, a, in a series of really beautiful um, you know, contributions from editors talking about John Singleton passing on RogerEbert.com. The man I'm talking to you today is QV. Haug, you would read it as ho if you're in Oz, but QV Haug, and for his friends, he allows his friends to call him Quinn, and I'm really lucky enough that he lets me call him Quinn. QV, Quinn, welcome to One Eight Minute. Blake, thank you so much, Blake. It's an honor to be on your podcast. I uh, thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you for reaching out. You know, to be honest, it's it's such a for me is. It's all about connecting with people from across the world and to receive these emails from people from uh, – I'm from the United States. From, so when I – whatever connections I can make, when they come from from Europe or from Australia, it would mean so much. And then to receive such a, uh, a personal essay, one that's – really affects me as an editor when i when i read it the first time through it it means a lot that's what it's all about you know like as you mentioned we're an indie website and and that that's that's what it's all you know we'll continue to grow and for me it's all about making the connection so i i really appreciate that introduction and thank you for reaching out and i'm happy to be on your podcast so here we are we're about to dive in 
I'm just going to dive straight in with Quinn and I. We're going to get into this minute. There's so much to talk about. And one thing that Quinn does that I do on this podcast and all you obsessives who have been listening along for the last 155 somewhat episodes, wow, thank you so much for being a part of the show. If this is your first episode of One Heat Minute, welcome. You have a lot of catching up to do. So we're going to dive into this minute um, just for a little bit of context. If you don't obviously know the minutes where we're up to, we've just seen Neil McCauley backing his way out of Wayne Goh's room. He's dealt out the final blow, this sort of, um, it's it's him writing the imbalance of the world, if you like, of this little heat universe. And he's walking out of the, the hotel room, he's back out, and one of the police officers who's meant to have been guarding Wayne Grow as Jameson in this hotel puts a gun to his back and Neil McCauley smashes him with a torch. What we have learned from Jordan Harper, um, and and if you just listened, you've listened to Abe Forsyth, a wonderful Australian director um, responsible for directing um, uh, uh, Little Monsters with Lupita Nyong'o, um, who's just uh, coming out this year. Um, he did point out that the mag light is rubber. So for real geeks of this, <laughs> real geeks of this movie, you would have just seen a rubber mag light beat up a stuntman. But right now, we're going to dive into that minute. You guys are going to have a listen along. Quinn and I are going to watch, and then we're going to come back and unpack it for you. Getting, we're getting close to the end. <laughs> sure are. I, I, I just, I'm staggered in these minutes. I don't know about you, but I'm staggered in these minutes about when you, when you dive into them, uh, at just all of the different camera techniques, um, both objective and subjective, and how it pivots between them so wonderfully in just like a few seconds. So you've got obviously the Neil moment that comes out of the room, this really omniscient. You know, there's like, I don't know what you call it, like this fallout presence that keeps sort of checking in of the fallout of these main characters as they leave spaces and you see Wayne Grow's body splayed out there for all to see unceremoniously. But the thing that strikes me right in the middle of this minute, and I'm sure we can unpack it all together, Quinn, but is just watching Edie's paranoia and the waves of realisation in these super wide eyes. Her eyes are just... You can, you can barely see her pupils. It's just they're so dilated and her, the whites of her eyes are big and the panic is setting in and the camera is embodying her sight and it's it's just pretty special. Yeah, exactly, Blake. That's what, that's what stands out for me and it reminds me of Mad Zillersite's disappearance on your podcast um, recently, maybe a few months ago, but he, he spoke about um, characters thinking in the moment. I think both of you spoke about this and for me is. Edie in the car, that's that's a pivotal moment of the scene. There's a lot of, there's a little, bef- in this particular minute, there's the action in, in the hotel. 
and then there's some helicopter sequences. But for me, what stands out most is Edie in the car, the realization that where where she is, one, and also where she could be going with Macaulay and that look on her face. And what's interesting is that man, he shows her once and then he cuts away back to Macaulay and then he cuts back to cuts back to Edie. And that second time you can really see her her realization. And that's that's what's special for me. All the chaos. You know, it's like all yeah, this ca- all this all this chaos is him. Like he's the architect of all of this chaos. And I love that in her performance that she's just like, all this chaos, it's all him. Every single second of it is him. And so, yeah, I just love, I love that. It's, it's one of those underrated little moments, but when you put it on a pedestal like we're doing, it's like incredible. I think I've also just, re- also, I think I've also just realized, I'll come back, you, you go first, but I think I've also just had a realization in that too. So you go ahead. I was just going to say, it balance, for me, it balances out her first appearance in the bar where she, she meets Macaulay and she's, she is kind of somewhat aggressive, you know, and she's, she, she approaches him and he's, he's, uh, he's thinking about other things and she gets him to, to settle down and balance out. And, and, and then that moment they have that connection. And by the end, you know, it reminds me of, it reminds me of, I'll just, it reminds me of Game of Thrones, which I watched, watched in this past week, just the balancing out of characters. Um, and that aspect, that's all I would say about Game of Thrones, but just the, the, call, the, the callbacks to, uh, to character introductions and character resolutions, you know, uh, passive, aggressive. And by the end, Edie, you know, she realizes what she's in, you know, it's not, it's not good for her, but she's, she has to come to grips with it. Yeah, this it must, you know, it's it's like that awakening moment, knowing where she is, and I love that there's still a lot of turmoil. Like she doesn't know what's going to happen. She has no clue what's going to happen, and yet she's still stuck in the car. It's like a lot of people, I think, make. <laughs> grandiose assumptions about your like your uh, your faculties when something really chaotic happens in your life and i think that that's one of the cool things about man is that although he sort of plays to melodrama sometimes in a lot of his movies or at least heightened human moments he sort of sticks authentic to the unglamorous thing that like when you're panicked you freeze like what are you gonna do like you're a normal person you're not these you know, professionals who spent 20 years like overcoming and, you know, trying overcoming, you know, normal people instincts and reflexively learning how to just immediately see a cop and pull a gun like Krisha Hairless. Like this is a, just a normal person. She's in the car. She's in a huge panic. And as she starts to panic, she can't move. Like she knows that all the cops, the helicopters, the fire engines, like she doesn't know where this guy ever, if he's ever going to come out or she's going to be sticking in that car when it's running and know what's going to happen in the fallout of her life. But here she is just there. Like, what do you do? Yeah. I would compare it to last Mohicans with Madeline Stowe's character, at least my visceral reaction where it's uh Madeline's that's a completely different environment for Stowe. But whereas with, with uh, Edie, she, she like you said, she's trapped in that car in in modern Los Angeles. And where do you go? You know, where do you run to? <laughs> yeah, she she's uh, there's, there's this 
this character that she's befriended, had a romantic, romantic relationship with. Uh, she lives, as she mentioned, she lives above Sunset Plaza. For me, you know, the location is important too because I know they're in, they're downtown. Not even they're down. They're not downtown. They're by the airport, which is by the beach. It's it's so isolated, and there's not a whole lot out there. To you know, it's it's still <laughs> L.A., but that's the that's it's. It's a unique location for men to set that scene at because it's the hub of people coming and going, but it can it can be very isolating, and that's what she's living in in that moment. And and who's this guy doing whatever up in in the uh, hotel room? You know, and that's where the scene starts. And yeah, like I I often wonder is. After they're sort of beautiful, and and it's you, you're so right. Like it happens in big TV shows, and I think that that's the credit to this epic that it plays like this in the wrapping up the resolution, the callbacks to the to to how they're introduced or how characters define themselves in a way. Like almost everyone here, almost everyone here the way they're introduced or the way that they set themselves up or the way that they define their lives starts to become like a series of ways that they can like that they're orchestrating their own demise. Like with Neil, it's like, I told you I was never going back. And so, you know, that's his, his final go. And Vincent's like, I'm only what I'm chasing after. And Justine's like, you know, I'm Mrs. Independent and I'm great and I'm tough but in her toughness, she'll just let Vincent go or she just, you know, she realizes she has to let him go. And with Ashley Judd, you know, Krisha Hellas, the sun rises and sets with her and she has to cut him loose. Like everyone is ramping up in these moments. And I think with Edie, to your point, it's like that sort of immediate trust and that reflexive trust that she has, like it's already been betrayed once, big time. And we saw that in the wake of the heist. But then when Neil sort of, says all the right things as they're looking out to the ocean, says all those right things, and then she sort of, he's, he comforts her. They're heading to the airport. That reflexive trust again just happens. And it's like, it's only when there's that, that visceral, like, physiological reaction in just a moment ago where her hands are shaking. She's like something's so deeply wrong. Like even though her mind is like in her heart's this really trusting thing. When she gets to this moment, it's all frantic, it's all panic, it's all instinct. And like that trust is just gonna well very shortly is about to be betrayed definitively. <laughs> like it's just like that's it. Um that's that's you know, Neil's gonna walk away from her. Um, but right now she's just in the grip of that panic, hoping that, you know, I guess that all these instincts are wrong again, but they're not going to be. Yeah, when I, when I first saw Heat, it was a 19, it was sometime in the mid nineties. I grew up, I was born in 1980. And so I was probably 15 when the movie was released. And now at 38, I see things a little bit differently where as I rewatch, rewatch Heat and I will rewatch this particular minute. I think back to Macaulay's meeting with, with Breeden, I think is his name. And he says, one answer, yes or no, right now. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and that transfers to, to, this, to this moment in a way where, where Edie can, she, she could leave, she could get out of the car and run, but 
she she is invested in Macaulay and <laughs> that I'm known. And they're so close. I mean, they're minutes away from going. And and I also think of Edie's the romantic moment back at their apartment where she says she says to him, "I'm something like I'm 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 very lonely." Or she's like, "I'm lonely." Completely. He's like, she, I'm lonely. I she goes, I'm lonely. She says, Are you, do you ever get lonely? And he says, I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. What about you? And she goes, I get lonely. She's way more honest than him in that moment. <laughs> I get lonely. And that's, and that's all that. That's the connection from there. And, and when they get down to, to LA, I mean, they're, they're, so, they're so close to going to New Zealand. And they're so close. That's what, <laughs> on a visceral level, it bugs me that, that, uh, that that uh, Macaulay leaves her in the car, you know that's troubling. But it also calls back to his halfway through the movie when he. Or, I didn't know it about this. I mean, it, it's it's his character, you know. He's both him. I guess as far as Macaulay and and Hannah, th- this raises the question of uh, antiheroes or protagonists. Like, are these characters that that we root for we can identify with certain traits of them but how much are they protagonists you know are these really i get i when i watch heat i see these characters as i see the human element like i'm not necessarily a big fan of hannah and his relationship with his his uh his, his wife with justine and there's some rough moments there and and Macaulay, of course, you know, like he's uh, he he states the facts about what he wants. You know, it's the thirty seconds. And can we uh, can we give a shout out to the guy from uh, from uh, you know the name the the unknown character from the Clank from uh, Alcatraz? What's the name that gave the movie its title? Oh, it's a uh, you know, it's it's either Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say. There it is. There it is. Jimmy McElwain <laughs> on the yard used to say, "Spot the yeah, that's Macaulay's, that's Macaulay's mantra." And I feel bad for for Edie in that moment, and just the fact that when man cuts back to her that second time, and in this minute that we're speaking about, when he cuts back the second time, that that's what hits me. You know, the first time is like I get it, like she's concerned, she's she's scared, but the second time you can see. And this 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 is what Matt Zoller Seitz spoke about recently, where man and his character is thinking. Earlier today, I watched Last of the Mohicans, and there's some moments with Daniel Day Lewis where he's he's just thinking on camera. I guess this was translate to uh, Collateral too. And for me, those are those are the best moments that hit me. There's all the action in the cars and the rape, but those those moments of the characters thinking and processing, like. Oh, you know, what's, where am I at? And in this particular minute, Edie is coming to a, a harsh truth about Macaulay. Yeah. It's, um, and it has like a little false hope in an upcoming minute. I won't, I won't tread too much on their minute, but you're so right. It's like, she's coming, she's, she's in the realization, whatever echo chamber of denial that she's in sitting in that car. Like she's, she knows that this is all bad and it's probably going to end bad. And you do get this little beautiful twinge of hope when Neil walks down those stairs out of that service, uh, you know, that service entry or whatever. 
and he's taking off the little clip-on tie, and he's like, hi, oh, this is all good, and then he, instinct, he just catches something in his peripheral vision, and he got to make the call. So good. <clears throat> the opening of the sequence, uh, the opening of this minute that we're speaking about, it reminds me of when I look at the frame alone, the first frame of the gun on the ground in, in the hotel, the, it reminds me of Scorsese and Main, and Main Streets. If there's a little more character on screen, it would. I, I, what I like is the framing. You know, there's yes. there's the gun. It's, it's the moment, the action, and it reminds me of one of my favorite artists, Caravaggio, and and, and Scorsese utilized Caravaggio in, in Main Streets with the Johnny Boy sequences, where at the bar where there's this. And, and other scenes too, but there's the coloring and the framing and, and kind of the moments of action. And, and when I look at this first frame of the, the minute that you gave me, I see the gun. I see Macaulay. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's moving. He's, and he's about to kick the gun. He's, he's about to kick the gun. But the, and this is, and this speaks to man's direction too. It's, it's not stylized. It's uh, this particular moment, at least. It's just, hallway gun man ready to kick and then in the next frame it's a little more stylized or in the next shot with uh with, with wayne grow um, kevin gage's character with rang wayne grow and that's and that speaks to man's direction too where man is so good at those like those cityscape shots the wide street shots you know the rain and the cars and then here's wayne grow just on on a couch, you know, taken out by. But Macaulay it is it's, and, it's an expansive shot in that room though, because like we've seen it like in that first person, such a frantic, you know, first person, almost like it looks like digital video shot for like two seconds as we watch Neil like, you know, um, what is it called? Like you know, smacks him with the butt of the gun, and pushes him back onto the couch, makes him look at him, and then he just shows the expanse. To your point, like here, it's like a corridor. Like if you look at those scenes, there's like lines on the carpet. The gun's there. He's he's in the motion of kicking it away. The cops in the lines on the carpet. Almost looks like he's about to be run over by a train. You know, like train look like train tracks on the carpet. And then there's this big expanse of this room, this opulent hotel, lights out the back, and this you know disgusting guy that we're so happy is dead just splayed out for us on that couch. Just like that's it. Life's over. The la- I think that's the last Wangro shot, right? The last shot and, of Wangro. And I think back to earlier with, with, uh, I believe it's Macaulay when he gets back to his apartment. It's it's, it's a blue color palette. He's looking out the window. Yes. Um, from the back, and that's for me. That's a, a beautiful shot. And then, and calling back to like, I shouldn't even just calling back to the Caravaggio aspects where it's like the sacred and the profane, right? It's just like this beautiful stylized colored shot. And then just reality of a guy dead murdered on, on the couch. And that's, and that's it. And I like those, I like those contrasts um, from one, from one character to the other. And 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 Wayne Grow, he's he's quite the, he's quite the villain too. He's a he's a good villain for this movie. Oh, he's a great villain. He's an he's a he's like a haunting wraith. He's like the devil in this movie, man. He's <laughs> he's, he's, he's 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 amazing. 
he's absolutely amazing. He's the chaos that this movie needs. He's the unpredictability. Um, and he's kind of like mixtures and shadows. You know, so many of the great people who have been on this show have helped me have a more expansive view of his character as kind of intrinsically connected to both Vincent and to Neil. And so in, in some ways, like Vincent, he's got bravado and braggadocio and he says, and he's got this confidence, but unlike Vincent, he doesn't back it up. It's just all a facade. Um, and like, uh, and like Neil though, he's also ruthless. Um, and his ruthlessness, he takes pleasure in it. Whereas Neil, I think one of the reasons that you were talking about are these guys, heroes, anti-heroes, their protagonists, certainly. Um, I think the conflict that we have is that even if we don't necessarily agree with everything that they do, we agree with the code with which that they undertake it. So with Neil, you know, he kills these people, but it's way more about order for him, sort of a weird perverse justice in his head than it is like normal what you consider like normal justice um and so you see that but then with wayne grow like he's got the same ruthlessness to kill but it's all like perversion and all id and all like you know just this weird self-expression yeah so he's wonderful he's just he, he he's the chaos that shouldn't it's one of my favorite scenes on reflection of this movie is the scene with van zandt where van zandt's been sleeping in his office all night um, played by Bill Fickner. He's been sleeping in his office all night. You get lovely Henry Rollins um, uh, coming in, as swole as he's ever looked. Um, and uh, he's <laughs> he, he's there as Hugh Benny. And Hugh Benny's out of his depth. Fickner's out of his depth. And Wayne grows out of his depth, but he acts like he's completely at home. So you get this great scene of three characters who are all completely out of their depth in this situation and none of them should be able to turn the tables on them but Wayne grows confidence with that chaos seems for him to be able to just do whatever he wants which is sort of the magic the magic of this whole thing and Wayne reminds me of that underground LA character where it could be from the 60s from Manson's time or a 70s hippie maybe an 80s rock and roller like you know, the uh, the equipment guy who's kind of hanging on and has some ulterior mo- Like, he seems like he can come from different different eras, and he's that L.A. guy who's he's going to ruin your vibe, you know? He's, <laughs> yes. he, he's, got, he's got his motive. He's got, like, there, he's got his, a specific code, a specific to L.A., whereas Vincent and McCullough, you know, they can, they, you know, there's a moment mid- before before they have their coffee meeting, there's a moment where where Vincent learns that um uh, or no I'm sorry where Macaulay learns that Vincent is actually a, like a big fan of him you know it happens it happens really there's a small moment of dialogue where he's like yeah you know this guy really likes you he likes the way you work and he's impressed by the uh, you do the efficiency you do that you do this shop you do that shop look how smart this guy is to figure that yeah that scene. <laughs> They don't make a big, a huge moment of it, but not too far after is when, is when they first, they first meet and they sit down and that plays into that scene where, you know, uh, McCullough, or not, I keep calling him McCullough. Um, Macaulay. You can call him Macaulay. De Niro. You can call him De Niro. Every, every person who loves this movie, if you're a deep psycho fan, you know the names Vincent Hanna and Neil Macaulay are like off by heart. But for so many people, it's Pacino and De Niro. Like it's like Batman v Superman. That's what this movie is. You know, like it's that's it's the it's the showdown that everyone always wanted to see. 
Yeah, and they, and they both, you know, on on just as, you know, with Pacino, as far as Pacino and De Niro, there's that moment of them sitting across from each other. But some of that narrative context for me comes into play, especially after the last viewing where it's like Macaulay knows that, you know, Hannah's a fan, you know, and he's got yes. that tarred up his sleeve. And, um, but he, but, but they both, they both play it straight. They, they, uh, um, even even Macaulay, w- once Vincent reveals what's going on with his personal life, Macaulay also says, you know, he he uh, you know he, he he reveals a bit of personal information too. He doesn't just shut him off, and I, I like that give and take between them, and um, and that this despite their despite their their character flaws as people that moment is is important for humanizing for the audience you know that the human elements yes um even if they're both uh you know <laughs> shortly after sh- shortly after vincent goes back to justine and like calls her a you know <laughs> <laughs> i never cheated on you what's bitch. The, what's the, he says i never cheated on you you, bitch. you can you can watch you can <laughs> but you can't look at my you can't look at my teleset. What's it called, Steve? <laughs> uh, so there's so many, uh, so many great Pacino. That's another beautiful thing about Heat. I, I mean, the, you know, Pacino's delivery, delivery of lines. Where looking looking back now, it can be, it can be a critique easily. But at the time, you know, 1995. Pacino hadn't quite veered off into this caricature of himself, and some of them are a little over the top, you know. But uh, he he makes his presence known, and he that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think they're all power plays. They're power plays. They're lovely little. In Heat, I think they're very intentional. It's like in some other things, it's like it's reflexive. He gets to go off book. And what's really cool about Pacino as an actor, like if you read interviews with him or you listen to podcasts with him. You know, he talks about just going for stuff and trying things and sometimes having great directors who will, like, rein him in or let him off the leash and liking to work with people who either rein him in or let him off the leash, depending on what they're looking for. And so I think sometimes it's, like, maybe it's, like, an intimidation factor. Maybe it didn't work with, like, if you look at the caliber of filmmakers, was he working with the same filmmakers who would protect him, you know, to, to go multiple takes and make him run through things and be ready and have a take on it and, and, and find something if he wasn't quite hitting it. But in Heat, my my greatest my greatest thing is that I genuinely think that if you watch it and you know Vincent Hanna and as a character and you know the places that he's like heightened, having these heightened moments and getting in people's faces, it's like it's all to do with the character, the scene and power, like his power, exerting his power and his presence in those scenes and the importance of him like keeping his posture. Um, whereas... In other movies, it's just off the rails. There's not that same intentionality. There's not that same like consistency with character. It's not. It's not even about who he's interacting with. It's just. It's just mania. Like and and I think some people like saw movies like Heat and um, you know Glenn Gla- Glenn Gary Glenn, Ro- Glenn Ross and were just like oh we like that well, let's have more of that or like you know it's uh it's one of those things one of those things but yeah it's it's a magic minute one bit I did I just made a note for myself is um, Schwartz. Um, uh, uh, who's played by uh, an actor by the name of Jerry Black. 
Um, he's one of the detectives. Um, you, he doesn't have a name. He's just called Schwartz. That's his last name. But here, Vincent's talking to a JJ um, on the communicator. So just for real heat nodes out there, I think we might have discovered that it's Jerry or Jay Schwartz or JJ. They just call him JJ on the line. His name might be JJ. So, you know, if that's the case, I don't know. Maybe I'll, uh, if, if Michael Mann ever comes onto the show to discuss it, it might be one of the questions. If I, if I remember to ask, I'll definitely do that. But it might be JJ. I've always gone in that scene. Who's JJ? Which one of the guys is he? Because it's not Casals, it's not Draka. It's obviously not Bosco. May he rest in peace at this moment of the movie. Bosco's been put down. Um, but if the last man standing is JJ back in the office, then. Here we are, JJ. Little trivia. Little trivia. Throwing it some trivia at you. So another thing about Pacino, and sorry, Blake, to interrupt. In that, in the, in the minute that you gave me, where with all that, with all the, the, I wouldn't say extreme Pacino acting, but in character Pacino acting with some of those big lines, um, was the Las Vegas scene or. some of the, the really powerful dialogue in, in the scene you gave me, he's up in the helicopter and he's just like Edie. He's, he, he's silent. You know, he realizes it's, it's a real moment. You know, he's, he's, he's close to losing De Niro's character and, and it's, it's, it's almost over for him. And, and, and what happens if he, if he loses this guy, you know, what's, what's next for him? Yeah, I always think about that because, like, you know, when he is talking to JJ, just to get the the lay of the land before there's those, you know, sort of bookended by those moments of silence. It's like Vincent has literally, like, he's gone all all in, like he's thrown the hail mary. He's gone all in on this. Like he's he has no more chips in front of him. It's if I bait Wayne Grow here, I either catch him or we lose him, and then we still have to process Wayne Grow and see what kind of dodgy guy he is, was he involved in the original heist, etc. He's still got all that to do. He's got dead cops. He has no Shahilis. They've lost the money. <laughs> He's just divorced. His stepdaughter has attempted suicide. Like, he has nothing. Like, he has nothing in that moment. And even right now in the helicopter, I think he, it's like, it must be like a hunter. He knows his trap's been snared, but he just doesn't know what, he doesn't know what he's coming up to. Like he set a trap in a certain spot. He's coming back. It's chaos everywhere. And he's just trying to find out how successful it was. Did they completely ensnare him or not? And right now, not knowing anything, it's just another, you know, he's, he's like, Oh, it's chaos down there. There's people everywhere. We've got, we've got teams going up there. You know, all the things that can give him the reassurance that hopefully he has been able to spring this trap. But at the same time, until someone says we've got Macaulay, like, he's still down. And so that's what's sort of great about this scene as well is that, you know, even though Vincent at numerous occasions in this movie has been like, he's done, he's gone, bang, bye-bye, motherfucker, you were good. You know, like all those great <laughs> moments and great lines. Uh, right now, it's just like that. there's that glimmer of hope. It's like looking at the cards being dealt. It's looking, you know, imagine it's like a poker game and you're playing Texas Hold'em and like they're just flipping the cards and you're like, you think you've got nothing, but you may be holding a royal flush. You're like, you just don't know until they put the next card down. Um, but it's starting to look like it could be all or nothing. And um, and in this moment, like, you know, in, in the coming seconds, you know, you feel like he's he's got the scent back, you know. He's, he's, he's almost there. <clears throat> from, a, from a May 2019 perspective, I would compare him to 
Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones, <laughs> where he's made he's made so many horrible decisions. I'm are you, I'm not sure if you're. Are you up to speed? I, I, am, a, I am a Game of Thrones. I, I've, I have seen all of Game of Thrones. I wouldn't call myself a fan uh, other than to say I like, I like the show, but there's like, it seems the fans, you have to be signing petitions like, apparently to be a fan now of Game of Thrones and I'm not that guy. I haven't seen a single episode of the current season. I haven't seen a single episode. So I'm, I'm saving myself for a binge session to watch the entire uh, finale. Well, I'll, I'll just compare him to a character like Tyrion who makes many bad mistakes and... He, he's not quite sure that he's making them. You know, he, he thinks he's on the right side. And and then suddenly uh, De Niro's character slips off to a hotel and everything changes, you know. And, and, and as a viewer, you know, as a viewer, given some of Hannah's scenes with Justine, where he loses some of those, some of his power, where he slips a bit in the power rankings, at least for me, um, you, you know, De Niro's character rises, and I think that's important for the climax. Where you, for some at least, you know, you're anxious to see if he's going to get out of there alive. But he's also a uh, a real criminal who's got his his girlfriend in the car, and he's going to leave her in 30 seconds if he has to. Yeah. And and that's what, that's what it comes comes down to. Like it's not about their romance in in New Zealand. It's about this guy who can he. Can he? Can you know? You can go back and is is he going to stay true to his code, or is he going to maybe grow as as a as a man and as a person and and escape? And that's the I guess that's the conflict that's so exciting, at least for me. In the in the end, you know. Absolutely. That that that's why we that's why we keep watching. Because the movie's so goddamn wonderfully ambivalent and convincing and uh, and um, and poetic, I guess that you can you keep wondering. There's that agony of is he going to stick to his code? Is he stuck by this programming, um, or is he going to go? And I think there's so many for so many times you watch it and you grow in fondness with his character. So many times you're like, God damn it, Neil, just go. Just go. You don't need to do this. Um, but you know that he wouldn't, he's not going to, you know, he's never going to not let Wayne Grow live a happy life eating room service in a robe. Like Wayne Grow, that's not Wayne Grow's <laughs> life. You know, he deserves to get that shot. Um, and, and we're here. Here we are, ready to. And that, I, th- I think Matt Zoller Sites might have mentioned this, but like, as far as man's filmography, where it's from heat from thief to, I, d- I didn't get a chance to rewatch uh, Manhunter, but I watched I rewatched Thief, Collateral, Last of the Mohicans, and these these characters of city characters going going through it and coming to the sending where it's okay, you know they're but w- with with heat, it's a little, it's a little different. Where it seems like man is reaching towards something where it's a little more challenging for both himself and for the viewers. Where it's like, okay, you know, James Conn's not going to walk off into the, the, you know, the, not the sunset, but I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking about thief. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of uh, course. Yeah, where, where, where his character Frank gets to. 
oh, you yeah. know, sever his connection in very dramatic fashion from <laughs> from uh, <laughs> from his employer, yeah, and um, walk away. And I like the I like the I like the balance of Jamie Fox and and Tom Cruise in Collateral, but it, it heat the in heat the stakes seem real, you know, where it's like these. The and of course the the final scene at the airport between Hannah and and Macaulay where the man provides you know the ultimate resolution where there's the finality and and that's what even that's what hits harder where um, knowing that these guys are not perfect but they're they are trying you know yes and I think that's I think that's a theme in man's, you know, they're trying really hard. They're, they're just, they need, <laughs> they need a little more time. And in this case, you know, there's, there's not enough time, you know, one of them has to, one of them has to go. <laughs> that is exactly right. You, we kicked off this before we started recording. You said you wanted to ask me a question because otherwise I would say that is the perfect way to end. There's some finality. They're not good, but they're trying. And I would just say, yeah. though, you wanted to ask a question. So, did you have a question that you wanted to ask me? I did. I mean, I I would like to. I have so many episodes to listen through. Still, I've listened to several over the last few days, all of which I've enjoyed tremendously. And um, I've noticed a common theme of people kind of making a not taking a shot, be like, you know, how did you come up with come up with this idea to break down every minute and personally i i i love that concept i want to know what made when was the moment that you decided that you're going to commit to one heat minute podcast okay uh some folks might have heard me talk about this in a roundabout way but i think what you're targeting is like when was the moment and so i i had a moment at the I had a moment at the Sydney Film Festival two years ago. Um, after a film, uh, I was having a drink with my two two of my dear friends. One is Garth Franklin, who runs Dark Horizons, one of the trailblazing movie news websites in the world, the legend that is Garth. Um, and occasionally, uh, I call Garth's room because Garth always has a hotel room. Usually, when we have the Sydney Film Festival, and and a, and and a very beautifully uh, stocked bar. And uh, I call it. Sha- I often call it Chateau Garth, um, or Chateau Dark Horizons. Um, e- either way. And so we were having a drink with another great friend of mine, Stu Coot, and the three of us were sitting there, and I was pitching them ideas about projects that I wanted to do. Um, and they had a bit of a like, you know, uh, a Sean and uh, Will Hunting moment from Goodwill Hunting, where I was kind of pitching them ideas, and Stu gave me the kind of like embrace me in the it's not your fault manner but um sort of embrace me and said like what do you actually want to do and the moment that that happened you know i reflexively and instinctively just said well i just want to fucking talk about heat all day and uh and in that moment he's like that's he goes that's a podcast i'd listen to and thus started the moment now that was like a whim it was still a whim it was still just an idea and so I decided I'll I'll give it a crack at at least having a proof of concept, like you know, to talk really, you know, 
to talk really practically about it, an artistic pursuit, I had a proof of concept. I'll just try it. I'll just try and test and see if it works. But I didn't want to just do one episode. So I recorded 15. The first 15 episodes of the first 14 episodes of the show were recorded in one sitting. Um, and I think it was about episode three that I was kicking off recording with Stu Coot because um, he was the first guest. The second guest was Garth Franklin. He came in for episode four that we kind of did it and we walked out and we're at my house at the time and we walk in and my wife was there and my baby girl and, you know, a couple of friends who were, were all part of the sort of this party recording uh, test. And um, and sort of Stu and I kind of looked at each other and nodding like, I think there's... Like, I think there's something in this. And so it's not, it wasn't one moment. It was just like, we did that. And then, you know, Garth came into a couple of Ripper episodes. And then my friend Luke Buckmaster, one of Australia's, you know, most outspoken and terrifically articulate and, you know, and singular critics, who I just adore as well, did episodes. And then we had a couple of joint episodes. And it was sort of really only at the end of that day that I was like, I just, I think... I was like, it was so deeply satisfying to give a piece of art that deserves celebration and scrutiny, the scrutiny that it deserves. Because I think in a lot of moments, like we have, you know, you talked about Game of Thrones before, is like, what's so awesome, it just from like an artistic perspective and screen art, is like you see so many people writing such great stuff and such great content is just coming out and like churning and like there's a bit of a collective interest in this sort of things. But things feel so fleeting. Like I think with Thrones, it's cool because it's like lots of people have committed a lot of time, lots of bodies of work into stuff. And I think that, you know, now the series is over, there might be some great consolidations of that work into books or huge features or, you know, special podcast series and stuff like that that will do a lot of consolidation. But I think a lot of things get forgotten. And so I just, when, when this moment came, it was like a series of moments, you know, just like this show is a series of moments where I just kept, I kept being rewarded and enriched by every new person that I spoke to. So like any time that there's been a moment where, uh, you know, it's, it's tiring as in, and never the actual episodes themselves, but just the organization and making sure that, you know, there's there's enough great guests that want to do the show or working around people's schedules or waking up at ridiculous hours or coaxing my wonderful guests like you to wake up at ridiculous hours to like join me to do this show. Um, every single time I do an episode, I feel really enriched by it, really enriched by your perspectives, really enriched by every other guest. Um, and so now it's like the gravity of this movie, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's so many people have like, the other big question people ask is like, are you ever going to watch this movie again? <laughs> like when this is done and I, and the answer I've got is, oh yeah, like I love this. Like yeah. I, I love this movie. If I loved this movie as a multiple, like times one times, how many guests have been on the show? It's probably 120 conservatively. Let's say a hundred guests on the show. Like, it's only exponentially grown with all these enriching ideas um, and so many great fans, unbelievable emails I get, and correspondence. It's, yeah, it's, it's a special thing. I like that you can, for one, uh, thank you for doing this. I, I appreciate the completest look at a full film like this. And I think it's important because when you bring on these guests, one person might want to talk about performance. And, and maybe only performance or or cinematography or 
or editing, you had the original editor on recently, and there's so many different layers, and all of that is so crucial to the filmmaking process. And these little, in the time where, you know, people maybe check out a movie is because because of different reasons. Where I think it's important to just break down what these films actually are, um, the good and the bad, you know. Uh, and 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 analyze it from beginning to end, and and you you've done that, you are doing you are doing that. Well, and done. It's, it's oh, I'm happy. I'm so happy to be a part of it. And thank you, Blake. Thank you, Quinn. Ladies and gentlemen, thank. Uh, I just want to thank my guest, an insane amount, QV Haug, for being a part of the show, Quinn for his friends, and I'm lucky enough to call myself that. Vague Visages is the place that you need to check out, which is V-A-G-U-E-V-I-S-A-G-E-S.com. Um, you can check out um, some stuff there. Uh, I'm you. Hopefully, you'll continue to see me um, sporadically put some stuff up there, but you'll see Quinn all around the place at a whole bunch of different things. Like I said, um, um, he's, he's a fixture um, and deservingly so a fixture and support some indie sites. So get on there and support him. Um, if you also want to um, check him out on Twitter, it's at QV Haug, which is at QV H-O-U-G-H or one word, no like underscores or anything like that. But I'll make sure I link the site and everything like that. Quinn, thank you, mate, again for being a huge part of the show. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your support um, and, uh, and generosity with the kind words. Garth Franklin, thanks for our web design. Paul Davies, who actually, I'm going to reveal right now in the 156th episode, I don't think Paul has ever listened to this show. I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to throw him under the bus for people. Like This is the guy who made the theme of the show. And like, he's a friend. He's a musician. He lives in South Australia. I'm going to throw him under the bus right now, Paul. Um, and I've said thank you to him in almost 156 episodes for our amazing theme. And this guy, he doesn't listen. So how dare you, Davies? All right, I've given you so much fucking credit on this show and you could you could listen. No, I'm just kidding. He probably does. I'm just being cheeky. But thank you to Paul Davies for our amazing theme. And uh, and guys, we'll catch another episode of One Eight Minute just around the corner. Ten.